Good evening, listeners. It's May 21st, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight we are joined by Dusty Gannon from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology, who is studying a genus of plant called Heliconia and its relationship to hummingbirds. Hey, Dusty. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what your research consists of? Yeah, so I'm kind of broadly interested in evolutionary ecology and um, specifically plants and plant evolution and uh, their relationships with their pollinators and how the pollinators influence uh, plant evolution and how they reciprocate that um, and influence the evolution of hummingbirds. And so if we kind of imagine, um, pick your favorite area, uh, say like a favorite alpine meadow, and write down all the plants that are in that meadow, and then um, write down all the potential pollinator species, and then draw lines between all the ones that interact, that would be kind of a pollination network. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how um, altering those networks or changing, changing the lines or the different connections or maybe removing a few um, would influence the, the course of evolution um, with respect to the plants. So is this currently an issue now where these networks are being disturbed? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, there is pretty widespread uh, pollinator declines. Um, it's particularly with um, kind of agricultural uh, crops because of pesticides and, and things of that nature. Mm. So are you looking at a specific geographical region, or does this apply generally? Well, I'm hoping to, yeah, that this can uh, be pretty pretty broadly applicable, but um, I I work in the tropics um, with a tropical plant genus, like you said, Heliconia, um, and they're hummingbird pollinators. And you had described this uh, kind of network. I'm thinking of a web with, uh, I think you have, might have described them as nodes, kind of like the little little houses that each one of these uh, visitors can go to. And in, in my view, this web is, you know, really abundant, really thick, and there could be some redundancy, right? Some pollinators, there are many pollinators that visit the same plant. So then I would say, why does it matter if one pollinator stops visiting that plant? There are still lots of other pollinators that are visiting that plant. Yes, yeah, so um, pollination networks are are pretty well known to be uh, redundant uh, as well as asymmetrical. So you tend to have um, very specialized plant species that 
uh, specialize on a specific pollinator, but that pollinator tends to be a generalist and visits a, a bunch of different plants. Um, and then kind of vice versa. So you have a lot of redundancy built in. Um, however, uh, so the, the system that I'm working in um, has kind of this cryptic specialization, which is a novel... Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a novel, novel plant behavior, if you will, um, where Heliconia tortuosa, uh, which is a, a common and keystone, considered a keystone species in um, kind of upper montane tropical forests, uh, in Central America. Um, so it can preferentially or it kind of choose its pollinators or which pollen to accept. Uh, and we think that it does this based on the amount of nectar that's pulled out of the nectary. Um, these flowers have fairly long curved corollas and, or, or flowers and, um, and certain hummingbird species have long curved bills, and those tend to be the ones that can induce pollination. And so somehow it's able to to tell which kind of pollinator visits uh, which kind of hummingbird, and then either accept pollen or not. Um, so if we imagine that uh, this system, if if we're looking at it um, and we we don't know that this cryptic specialization exists. Um, then sure, the removal of one pollinator species doesn't mean that much. Uh, however, if if that one pollinator that can actually incur pollination um, is removed, then then that's a huge deal to the plant. So analogously, um, if we think about that from from the perspective of a, of a store, um, and we're sitting on the outside just kind of watching. Uh, people go in and buy things in the store, but we have no idea what they're buying. We don't know what happens inside. Uh, we just watch them go in and then come back out. Uh, well, there are 10 regulars, and one of them just stops coming one day. Um, doesn't really seem seem like that big of a deal, unless we know that that, that one regular that stopped coming um, maybe supplied 80% of the profits for that for that store per day. So that that's a huge Huge deal. So loss of that shopper or pollinator will be more impactfully felt in a sense. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious about this word you used, cryptic, or term, cryptic specialization. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, so cryptic just kind of being, it's difficult to see, or um, yeah, on, on the surface level, yeah, we might not understand it or see it. Um, and then the specialization just refers to that that plant, Heliconia tortuosa, being very specific to its... Uh, the, the relationship between the plant and the pollinator is very specific. So we don't have this broad generalist kind of pollination happening within this plant. So, And to, to touch on this again, past uh, researchers have kind of looked at the plant and would kind of look at there and count, you know, how many of these hummingbirds are visiting uh, and then, you know, which plants are they visiting? And then by that you get a nice count, uh, you know, per day or per hour, whatever it is, but you don't really know what's happening at the plant level. So they might be extracting nectar, which they need, but the cryptic part of it is we don't know what the plant is responding to of whether or not pollen is being produced. And that pollen production is really what helps to build up a, like it's genetic robustness and really helps to, you know, well, spread its seed, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. Pollination is very important, obviously, for reproduction. And uh, um, 
so in in this case, we think that the reason that um, it's it's developed this specialization or evolved this specialization with uh, the long um, curved build hummingbirds is because those hummingbirds also tend to be what we call trap lining, um, which is a term that comes from trappers like uh, like beaver trappers, hmm. where they would uh, set traps and then walk walk around and and um, check their traps. And so this is kind of um, a similar behavior that these hummingbirds exhibit, and they they travel kind of long distances in more or less a circuit, um, visiting kind of known uh, nectar resources. And so these have uh, long, kind of curved bills, and they tend to fly much further than the other type of hummingbirds. Could you describe those? Yeah. So the other type um, is kind of your what most people think of with hummingbirds being very territorial, and they they kind of monopolize a, a specific nectar resource and and defend it um, very <laughs> viciously at times. So yeah. They're homebodies, <laughs> is what it sounds like. Yes, they have yeah distinct home range, and they tend to stick around. But the interesting thing about these territorial hummingbirds is that they might not have the right kind of beak for adequate nectar extraction. So the idea being that you need to, the hummingbirds need to extract a certain threshold of nectar for pollination to go forward. Is this sort of what happens? Yes. Yes. Uh, that that's the going hypothesis is that nectar, the right amount of nectar, which probably is just all of it, um, is extracted (laughs) by certain birds and, uh, and, and, much less by the ter- territorial hummingbirds. And so going back to why we think that may have evolved is um, generally the if you're traveling long distances and collecting pollen from distant sources, that pollen is more likely to be genetically distant as well as geographically distant. Um, and just reason being like seeds kind of fall or the apple falls fairly close to the tree, right? So... Um, so offspring tend to be kind of clustered around around their parents, depending on your um, dispersal mechanism. And so the farther away you get, probably the more likely that that individual is um, more more distantly related. Hmm. And then and, from an evolutionary perspective, the further apart or the more genetic diversity you have, the more robust the species can be to future changes or perturbations in its environment. So it's really beneficial to get that geographic and genetic diversity. That's that's what we think. However, it's that you know there's always caveats when it comes to <laughs> ecology. Um, <laughs> you know there there is always a, a rule breaker for sure. But um, generally, we kind of assume that outcrossing or the opposite of inbreeding is a good thing. Um, hopefully, we will be proving that experimentally at some point. Um, that that actually that inbreeding within Heliconia tortuosa is uh, detrimental is uh, yeah. So this research has been done primarily in pre up to now. It's been done in Heliconia tortuosa, but you are looking at multiple species across the genus Heliconia. Is that right? That's your portion of this project. Yeah, yeah. So my portion will be to try and try and understand how widespread this is um, first across the genus and and perhaps further um, 
and to also try and understand the genetic mechanism behind that behind the response more or less so so if there are genes that are responsible for producing enzymes or proteins that either allow pollen tube growth or inhibit pollen tube growth um, whatever that mechanism is we'd like to understand how it's controlled genetically and so we'll be doing some kind of RNA uh, seek type analyses where we okay. yeah look at expression of genes before and after uh, visits. That's really cool. And when you said uh, earlier that we hope to prove you know this hypothesis, I want to remind the listeners that you're uh, that you're pretty early into your PhD program, so you still have many more field seasons to go and many more exper- <laughs> experiments to run and lots more DNA to sequence. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. And um, to remind our listeners also, there if, if you're having trouble kind of figuring out what this plant looks like or what the beak shape may may be, uh, you can check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where there's beautiful pictures of the plant itself as well as examples of the flower and the very diverse shapes that these flowers take on, which go back to the idea that these hummingbirds, uh, they, they have not only do they uh, go across geographic areas very discreetly, but also their beak shapes are, are are very are very different, which always takes me back to to Darwin's you know finches idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that that really kind of touches on the the point of specialization, and that um, for some reason between plants and hummingbirds, and and there are a few hypotheses as to why, but um, no real consensus is. They tend to, they tend to specialize on on hummingbirds. So the flower shape will will fit um, a hummingbird, a hummingbird beak. This brings us to an interesting conundrum because you have to extract this nectar in order to see if there's a pollen response. So how do you, not having a hummingbird beak, extract this nectar? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, with kind of a, an assortment of. Uh, interesting tools that I picked up from the chemistry store here at OSU. And uh, yeah, depending on the different species, I kind of put together an agglomeration of different tubes and syringes and, uh, and pipette tips and things like that to work my way down into the Corolla, um, either long, curved, short and straight, whatever it happens to be, um, and, and try and suck out all the nectar. Um, and then and then hand pollinate that subsequently to try and uh, to test whether or not nectar extraction can induce uh, receptivity to the pollen versus kind of a control where I keep the bat keep the plant bagged at all times and um, supplement it with pollen but without extracting any nectar. Um, so so there are kind of yeah this past field season we ran three different treatments. Um, where we just have an open one where the hummingbirds are allowed to visit and one where we bag it and then supplement with the hand and then, um, but without nectar extraction and then one where it's bagged, um, we take the bag off, extract nectar, hand supplement, and then put the bag on. So there's a picture of you extracting the nectar from (laughs) one of these, uh, Corollas, um, on our blog too. So definitely check that out. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was kind of early in our um, methodologies where I, I was just sucking it out at that point, and my cheeks got very sore, and I usually get pretty lightheaded by the end of the day. So, 
unexpected challenges of field work, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously you were not here when you did this field work. Where did you actually, where did you do this? So I was at um, the Las Cruces Biological Station in uh, southern Costa Rica. Um, It's kind of near the border of Panama. So that was earlier this year that you did that? Yeah, kind of January through March. Okay. So in you do that data, um, the collection part, and now you're just sort of processing that data that you collected in a yep. sense now? What, yep. what does that process consist of? So, um, so yeah, now I'm going through and staining all these uh, styles or the female reproductive organ and um, <clears throat> staining them with a fluorescent dye that... Once we kind of mount it onto a slide and and crush it to one cell thick, more or less, and uh, put it under epifluorescence microscopy, the um, the pollen tubes fluoresce bright yellow, and so we can uh, kind of go through. We run transects kind of up and down these uh, style slides and and try and count the number of pollen tubes that we can find. And so pollen tube number is a measure of how successful pollination or reproduction was, correct? Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's a measure of, of the pollination, but yeah, more of a proxy to reproduction um, because plants do have uh, other mechanisms that can um, either abort seeds or, or um, recognize self-pollen at, at the seed and or at the ovary and and uh, so there are, there are other blockades to get through, but it's a it's a nice proxy and an easier proxy than waiting for waiting for the seeds to develop. So, and that's a good point because uh, you had mentioned before that this is a, a keystone species, and uh, the flowers themselves uh, will last about a, a day long. So uh, new flowers will be produced every day, which really helps from an experimental perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's kind of the most yeah convenient um, uh, pollination system <laughs> that I can imagine because, yeah, you go out there, you put a bag on a plant and treat a specific flower, give it a, yeah, one of our treatments, and then you go back the next day and co- can collect the flower with, um, with no harm done to the plant. And then, and then you can keep using the same individual over and over again for different replicates, different types, uh, different uh, treatments. And uh, so it, it creates kind of a nice uh, experimental design. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and we're speaking to Dusty Gannon, uh, who's part of the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology, and he was just describing uh, his trials and tribulations of field work. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you, so you're doing this field work in Costa Rica, but this wasn't the only reason why you wanted to go to Costa Rica originally. You kind of had other plans to make it to Central America. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've, for as long as I can remember, wanted to be a tropical biologist. Um, or I always thought that being a tropical biologist would be cool. I didn't, I didn't really know if I would go down that route, but, um, yeah, I always, I always did want to, uh, see the Amazon and see, see tropical forests not quite in the amazon in costa rica but um we still yeah there's still a, um, a great great diversity of, of species to see there so it's still pretty amazing and then it w- 
So one thing I was wondering is what made you want to go to OSU? You're in your first year of your PhD, so that's early on. So the <laughs> memories of that process of coming here are uh, fresh. They're fresh memories. So I was wondering um, what was that process of going from your undergrad to OSU? Yeah, so uh, I, I did originally want to take a year off and go down, go down to South America. Um, but some, some kind of, uh, unintended circumstances or, yeah, unforeseen circumstances kind of expedited the process. And, um, yeah, I ended up here and, uh, well, I, I visited a couple schools, but really this project and, uh, working yeah, on this project with Matt Betts and Andy Jones was, um, kind of the deciding factor. And then uh, can can we go back just a little bit further in the history books? You had described that you were really interested in biology, but what was one of your first inclinations that made you realize, you know, biology is pretty cool, probably cooler than political science or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, it has to be the my um, AP biology teacher in uh, yeah in, in high school. She was pretty amazing, and I, I'm actually still uh, good friends with her, and. Um, was working with her last summer to do a to run a high school phenology uh, research program in Colorado. Um, so we, yeah. So she helped me kind of organize the students, and then I took them out in the fields uh, like six times throughout the summer to kind of monitor phenology of a, a rare plant out there. So phenology, can you explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. So phenology is um, kind of the study of of cycles um, and the timing of those cycles and, and factors that influence that timing. So if we're, for plants, we're generally talking about like flowering time or leafing out or bud, bud bursts or things like that. Um, so, so at what time does that happen in the season? And then can we, can we kind of correlate those, that timing with environmental variables? So during your undergrad, what were you studying? Uh, in undergrad, I studied uh, ecosystem science, which is more so the um, the study of how energy and nutrients flow through an, e- uh, an ecosystem. Um, so that's kind of had a uh, recent resurgence with uh, climate change. And um, yeah, studying carbon fluxes is and, and energy is, um, yeah, where a lot of people are going right now, so interesting stuff and um so that that decision though to pursue graduate school were you doing any research in your undergrad that would introduce you to that process yeah i was uh, i was lucky enough to work uh for four years in a evolutionary biology lab um at csu and i i did some and dna csu bar. is colorado state yeah yeah so <laughs> and uh yeah did dna barcoding which is uh sequencing dna for the um kind of identification of species or delineation of different species um and we did this for uh, aquatic insects so kind of stoneflies and mayflies um from colorado and ecuador and dna barcoding was really necessary because most of the species in ecuador aren't described morphologically um, so we needed a way of kind of leveling the playing field there. And, uh, 
yeah, so I ran probably 10,000 PCR reactions over four years. So you must have been an expert by the end at running PCR. (laughs) (laughs) I I felt pretty comfortable with that protocol, yeah. (laughs) And maybe it'd be helpful for our non-biology listeners to describe what PCR is. (laughs) Yeah, so PCR is polymerase chain reaction, and it's it's a way of amplifying uh, DNA segments, so replicating DNA over and over and over and over again. Um, and this is used so that you can, uh, yeah, without going into too much detail, uh, it's a technique to kind of amplify the signal so you can sequence DNA um, and, and figure out the, the A's, T's, C's, and G's. So. Yeah, because the DNA can be, that you're interested in can be at such a low concentration, it's a low amount that you won't even, you have to amplify it or create more to get that um, more intense signal. So, I actually want to go back to an award you received in high school uh, that you were that you were voted by your student body. (laughs) Uh, Could you describe this? Because I think this is just such a unique, uh, a a unique award to to get from from your from your high school from your fellow high schoolers. (laughs) Yeah. So the those yearbook awards that people vote on. I. I guess it's kind of common um, where they you know, vote so-and-so is most likely to do this later on in their life. Best uh, eyes or you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, uh, I was nominated or yeah, voted the most, most likely to get a PhD but then work in a ski shop. <laughs> well, at least one part of that is right. You know, you are well, getting, yeah. you are we'll in your pursuit of, P- of your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at least on that track right now, yeah. The consensus has spoken. <laughs> well, you might, jury's not out, you might not, or you might, yet work in a ski shop. What are your plans following graduate school? Yeah, well, I, w- I would like to stay in academia and, uh, yeah, hopefully be a professor at some point. So we have two traditions on the show. We're getting to the end of our interview here. And the first one is that we like to ask a piece of advice that you would give to yourself before this started or another undergrad or another graduate student. Yeah, so this is a pretty hard question, I, I realized. But um, yeah, some I don't know if it's really advice, but maybe uh, something that's been helpful for me is is taking the time to cook a really nice dinner at least three or four times a week for myself. And that, I don't know, taking that time is a really wholesome experience and I think a good thing for us to do when it's really, even when it's busy. Yeah, when you get stressed out. Yeah. Which actually, one thing that brings us back to, um, potentially you want to open a bread shop. Is this right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a backup plan. Yeah. yeah. What's special about this bread shop? Uh, my yeah, my bread shop would yeah, I would go through the process of collecting data to make a very uh, detailed um, statistical model to to make the bread the best bread possible given the environmental conditions every time. So like <laughs> pressure and humidity. Yeah, whether it's yeah. raining outside or it's summertime. Yeah, heat of the kitchen. You know what kind of oven you're using. 
Yeah. Where where the grain comes from. Well, I can promise yeah. you you have two loyal customers sitting across <laughs> the table from you right now. Well, Your you better customer. you better try the bread first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the uh the second tradition we have on the show is we ask our guests for a uh, for a song and uh, you 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 picked a really interesting song. <laughs> so uh tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's um it's called The Contact by the Contortionist. And this whole album, actually, start to finish, is written as, as the uh, lab notebook of an extra-dimensional being um, who's conducting an experiment, which is, happens to be uh, life on Earth. And uh, so it's, the, whole, the whole thing kind of goes through evolution of life on Earth as seen from an experimental um, or a lab notebook. I like so. that idea. It's very interesting. <laughs> so contact is like the third, um, yeah, the third, I think, song on there, fourth song on there where, yeah, things have kind of moved past uh, the void and, and now there's life and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As any graduate student knows, uh, if we were to lose our lab notebook, it would be an absolute travesty. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I, that's yeah, that's pretty terrifying. I'd actually, I'd actually rather lose my computer than my lab notebook yeah. because I have my computer backed up. Yeah. But my lab notebook, that's where like a lot of thinking happens and a lot of everything happens. I would be re- – I don't even want to think about it. Never yeah, mind. I don't, I don't want yeah, to think about it. And backing horrifying. that up is a lot harder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Dusty, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you coming on. Again, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We will be off next weekend due to Memorial Day. Uh, but here it is uh, with a band called The Contortionists with a song called Contact. Thank you, Dusty. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. 